0: Why don't we open our time in a word of prayer, okay? Father, once again, we want all of this to be about you. And even as we look at your word together as a corporate body, I pray that you would be glorified as the preaching of your word goes out and the sword of the Spirit does its work in our hearts and lives, Lord. I pray that we would be soft and tender to your word, that we would be people that would be changed. In the light of your preaching today, Lord, we ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, the title of our message this morning is Doers of the Word, Doers of the Word. And I want to read James 1, 19 through 25. If you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. James 1:19 says this This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger; for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word Amen to the reading of His Word. You may have a seat. Well, statistics are not always the greatest indicators of reality, but they can be helpful in some ways. Uh, For example, would you believe that the average professing evangelical in America listens to some 75 to 100 sermons in a particular year? Uh, In just our own circles in Southern California... It is estimated that the average Christian listens to over 150 sermons per year. This is just, by the way, in sermons. We're not talking about devotionals or theological discussion or um, even your own um, time in the Word, we're just talking about listening of sermons. Um, and we would say that that is actually a good thing um, for us to have a lot of Bible intake in our Christian walk. Amen? a good very healthy thing you should get as much bible as you can get and even as we look at our mass media uh, age um, we have a wonderful opportunity to be even more exposed to the word of god through apps that we can download and hear the word of god being preached and taught different blogs that we can read and be even more exposed to the word of god Um, this is very healthy for us to expose ourselves to the word of god this way And if that's you, and you love to get Bible into your mind and heart, that is a very good thing, and I want to affirm you to continue to do that. But if we're honest, many of us are quite dissatisfied when it comes to our response and obedience to the Word of God. It doesn't always flesh out in our lives as we should. For example, have you asked yourself this week, how much of what you listened to last Sunday, whether it was the main service or fellowship groups, or um even in interactions that maybe you had as a uh, with one another where you talked uh, spoke truth into one another's lives how much of that actually has made a difference in your life in terms of your view of god your attitudes your words your actions your decision making maybe the way that you treat other people it can be quite discouraging sometimes when we look back at our week or maybe uh, months or years and not really see much fruit over the years um, as it pertains to uh, uh, fleshing out the Word of God in our, in our hearts and lives. Now we want to be very careful because I'm sure you would agree that spiritual growth is not always so easily quantifiable or, or verifiable. We know that because we're humans and we're broken creatures... There's always going to be a disconnect between our hearing of the word and our ability to apply it. Ideally, we would like to apply everything that we hear. But we can't perfectly fulfill the ideal here on this earth. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful to a gracious God who certainly understands my own human weakness and my deficiencies. I'm so thankful that at the end of the day, ultimately, He is the one that is... Bearing, uh, causing me to be to be fruitful in the christian life because i 'm always deficient and i 'm always weak in terms of my application of his word i 'm so thankful for this process of sanctification that it is ultimately in his hands but even so, God is very interested in how his children receive and respond to his word and this is the focus of james one nineteen through twenty five here we have the answer to the question, how are we to respond to the Word of God as children of God? Which is really James's overarching concern in this letter. Throughout this letter, James makes the point that the Christian's devotion to the Lord must be shown very visibly in our loving obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep... My commandments. Notice that. If you love me. If you love him. Because as Christians, our ultimate motivation for obeying God's word is our love for him first and foremost. Christians are people who have been restored to a right relationship with God by faith in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, as an act of worship and love for Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, we pursue him in loving obedience. Amen? We display a fruitful life because of the fact that we're so grateful to our Savior and our Redeemer who has delivered us from sin. This is what James 119 through 25 is all about. Now, before we get into our passage, it's very important that we understand uh, what James has said previous to this. James has made the point in verses thirteen through eighteen that God is not the author of temptation. No matter how far you look in temptation, you will never find God as the originator of temptation. Because that is that would imply that his divine character is flawed. If he is tempted by evil. He cannot act to tempt someone to to sin because that would mean that he's less than good. God is never, ever, ever, ever the author of temptation. Instead, James makes the point, God is the giver of all good gifts. He is a good God. He is a sustaining God. He is a creator God who gives only what is good, of which the greatest gift of all is salvation for the believer. And we say amen to that, huh? Verse 18, he says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the instrument by which God has saved us is the word of truth, according to verse 18. The word of truth refers to the gospel message about the Lord Jesus Christ, by which we have been saved by faith. And now James from verses 19 and following is going to expand upon the work of the word of truth in the life of the believer. Take note, the transition is very clear because we as believers have experienced the transforming power of God. And we've been made new creatures by the word of truth. We are to continually submit to the word of truth, allowing it to do its work in our lives because we are not a finished product beloved we are in a process called sanctification the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and the instrument by which God is going to conform you into the image of Christ is the word of God so verses 19 through 25 are all about a right response to the word of God being doers of the word if you will In fact, six different times, there are six different references to the word of God in verses 19 through 25. Take note, in verse 18, the word of God is referred to as the word of truth. In verse 21, the word of God is referred to as the word implanted. Verse 22, it is called the word. Verse 23, it is figuratively referred to as a mirror. Verse 25, it is referred to as the perfect law, the law of liberty. We have six different references here to the word of God. This is the key passage in the book of James, by the way. Because here, this passage encapsulates everything that is a central concern for James for his beloved brethren. Namely, that though they live in a sinful world, scattered all over the Roman Empire, they need to respond to God's word with loving obedience in light of the king's return to the glory of God. This is such an important passage for us as a church, beloved. And we're going to camp here for the next two Sundays. This is a two-part message from this particular passage. We want to be a scripture-driven church all the more. Amen? We want to be driven by the scriptures. But being scripture-driven does not just mean listening to the word of God. Or that we always are hearing preaching and teaching all over the place. But also that as we hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, as we are exposed to the Holy Scriptures and His Word, that we are people who are actually living at the Word of God as well, right? We want to be doers of the Word. So in verses 19 through 25, I want us to examine what it means to be a doer of the Word. And I want to give you three exhortations in particular that you and I must give heed to if we are going to be doers of the word and see Christ exalting change in our lives. Three exhortations that we must give heed to here. The first one is this. If you want to be a doer of the word, if you want to see Christ exalting change in your life, you must be a person who cultivates an attitude of humble teachability. Cultivate an attitude of humble teachability in response to the word of God. Look at verse 19. James says, this, you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Notice, first of all, in verse 19, this is a transitional statement. This, you know, my beloved brethren. It looks back to the previous context where, as I mentioned, James has made the point that God is not the originator or the author of temptation, ever. But instead, he's a good God who only gives good gifts to his children, of which the greatest gift of all is your salvation, that you've been brought forth by the word of truth. So it looks back to that reality about God. But it also looks ahead to James's expansion on the work of the word of truth in the Christian life and a right response to the word of God. So it's a transitional statement here. Now, some people take the three subsequent exhortations in verse 19 as these isolated, independent directives uh, when it says quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger as if they're independent directives. But as I mentioned, the whole context of verses 19 through 25 has everything to do with the Word of God. So it is important to see that all three exhortations in the context are tied to this overall uh, truth that James is conveying to us about a God-glorifying response to the Word of God. Notice how James exhorts them first and foremost in verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear. James is saying, obeying these instructions is of utmost necessity. He says, everyone must be quick to hear. This is of utmost necessity. And it's comprehensive. Everyone must listen to what I'm about to say. Everyone must be quick to hear. This idea of quick to hear is this eager attentiveness and ready to receive and assimilate the message heard. If you think about it, at this time, the New Testament had not been formally written. So it was even more crucial and critical for people to listen well. Um, there were traveling preachers, missionaries, and local prominent teachers who would come through and they would preach and they would teach how important it was to listen well for people. But just listening is not all that James has in mind here. He also says that everyone must be slow to speak and slow to anger. This slow-to-speak idea has, has to do with a hasty reaction to what is heard. It implies a lack of careful consideration before expressing one's opinion. In this context, it implies an argumentative spirit with the Scripture or the proclaimer of the Word of God. And not only that, but James says, Be also slow to anger. This implies a, a strong, persistent feeling of indignation and active anger that we may display or harbor. It is having a disposition of bitterness and dislike or indifference to the Word of God. James is not talking about here righteous anger, which is very difficult to find in any of us, right? It's very difficult to find righteous anger. He's talking about anger that leads to reckless speech that wounds others. In this context, it is anger which may arise for, from a dislike of what is being taught, leading to arguments between believers, disputes, dissensions, factions amongst one another. In fact, James indicates in other places of the letter that he's very concerned that these believers are struggling with sinful anger. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he exhorts them about the danger of destructive speech which is a manifestation of sinful anger in the human heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, he references jealousy and selfish ambition. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, he mentions quarrels amongst them, and conflicts, and envy, and fighting amongst themselves, which all arise from sinful anger being harbored. Now listen. Putting all three of these exhortations together is very, very important. James is not giving isolated exhortations here. He's giving instructions with relation to the Word of God. And what he is saying is this, rather than having a combative spirit, rather than having a spirit of argumentation, which is quick to give your own opinion or even get angry at the Word of God, you are to respond with an attitude of humble teachability. Humble teachability. And if you notice in verse 20, he gives a reason for this. He says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The upright, godly conduct that God approves of will never come about if we respond with anger in this way. Our sinful anger never leads to righteous, godly living. Righteous anger, uh, human anger never produces or brings about the righteousness, the character that pleases the Lord in oneself or in others, beloved. We must be so careful with that. But specifically, what James is getting at in response to the word of God, in response to truth being spoken into your life, you must be careful. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know, I've had many opportunities to counsel people in my office. And it's very typical for a husband when we're sitting there after listening to the issues that are going on in their marriage. All of a sudden you open up the scriptures and you start encouraging that husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church. Open up Colossians chapter 3 and start encouraging him to be understanding to his wife and not allow bitterness to dwell inside of him. And all of a sudden his disposition starts changing and he starts getting upset and argumentative. And he starts giving all the excuses why the Word of God can't possibly be saying that in his own way because of the type of woman that he lives with. There you have an argumentative spirit, a self-defensive spirit, trying to dismiss the authority of what God calls him to do because he doesn't like it. That means he has to give up something, namely his pride, that he can't give up. You know, I've had youth whom I've spoken to. And I've encouraged them to get out of a sinful relationship. They claim that they want to pursue Christ, but they are in this destructive relationship. And as soon as you open up the scriptures and you start talking about principles from God's word and you start speaking that truth into their life, they get defensive. It's like, how can you, how can God not want me to be happy? How can God not want me to be in this love relationship? And they start fighting and pushing back on the word of God. And they don't want to submit to what God has to say. That happens all the time. The anger of man does not achieve the righteous conduct that God approves of. It never will. It never will. So in relation to the hearing of God's word, there are people, and we must guard, beloved, on not being people who, instead of submitting to what God says, we get angry at God, His people, and His word. And we can do this explicitly or in subtle ways. Or we allow bitterness and and a harboring of, of anger in our hearts and we stay away from people because we don't want truth being spoken into our life. We can stay away from being around the community of believers because of people who are always talking about this holiness thing. That reveals more about where you are spiritually than about those particular people. Ultimately, sinful, proud anger does not lead to growth in character or holiness in your Christian life, beloved. Cultivating an attitude of humble teachability in the Christian life is huge. I remember early on in my Christian walk, a brother telling me, Kempis, in your Christian life, don't ever stop being teachable. Don't ever stop being teachable. He was so right. He was so right. Teachability is huge. You know, I have a passion for training leaders by God's grace both in the church and internationally. I love training leaders. And i got to tell you right now, the single greatest thing that I look for in potential leaders is humble teachability. Are they teachable? I don't care how good-looking they are. I don't care how popular they are. I don't care how experienced they are. I don't care how much they know. What I care about is are they teachable to the word of God and committed to unreservedly do that which God requires of them because they love the Lord Jesus and they want to worship Him through their loving obedience. That's what I look for. Are they teachable? Are they receptive to what God says? You know where this humble teachability ultimately is derived from? A high view of God. A high view of God. Think about Isaiah 6. Isaiah sees this vision of the majesty and the glory of Almighty God in His power. And everything is shaking because of the power and the might of God. And amazing angelic beings are there. And Isaiah beholds this whole thing. And His response is this brokenness and humility before Almighty God in what He's seen. And He is, he, he says, Woe is me for I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. This is brokenness in the life of Isaiah in that moment as he beholds his vision, and he's brought low to the ground. But do you remember a few verses later, God says, Who should I send on this mission? And what does Isaiah say? Send me. Send me. He has seen this great vision of the majesty of God. And a high view of God leads to this unreserved pursuit and commitment on the part of Isaiah to unreservedly obey Almighty God in this difficult mission. See, humble teachability, a willingness to do that which God requires, is derived from a high view of the majesty and the greatness of Almighty God. Amen? That's where it comes from, beloved. Think about little David. Little David. Who would have thought that he would have been the next king of Israel? He goes to the battlefield to deliver some food for his brothers and check up on them, and all of a sudden he becomes aware of this Goliath, this giant who is there, and he's spewing out um arrogance to the armies of the living God. And David's response is like, Are you any of you guys gonna take this guy out? I mean, who does he think he is his punk? I'll take him out. David goes out and does that. He 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 takes out the Goliath, the the, the, the giant. Why? Because of his view of Almighty God and his zeal and his passion for God. And he responds. He's committed to doing that which he knows God would want the Israelites to do. Take out Goliath. See, unreserved obedience, humble teachability on the part of this young man, David and Joseph. What about Joseph in Genesis? You know, persecuted by his brothers, thrown into a pit, winds up in Egypt, and God uses him in an amazing way, even despite his sufferings, to eventually deliver his people from dying and famine, and they wind up in Egypt. God uses Joseph, and why does he use him? Because Joseph has his commitment to do that which God desires for him to do, and stay pure and holy in the midst of it. He, is, he was committed to doing what is right, no matter what, even if it wound him in jail, Right? amazing individuals who are humble and teachable and who lovingly obey god with all of their hearts beloved are individuals whom god is going to use god is looking to use the weak to shame the so-called wise you see but we must be humble and teachable well i want to ask you this morning are you cultivating humility and teachability in your life are you cultivating this in your life You know, pride can take over us whether we are young or older. Notice I didn't say old, I said older. Young or older. I want to ask those of you who are older, age-wise or spiritually speaking, are you teachable? Are you teachable? Or are you, as they would say, set in your ways? You know, perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You've been around the block. You're kind of set in your ways. Whenever there's a sermon preached or there's something imparted, you're thinking, ooh, I hope that young person who, who, who needs, this, needs to hear this is around. Where are they at, by the way? Or you keep thinking about how things apply to another particular person in the church. Things are always directed at them in your own mind and heart. The younger people in the church need to really hear this. Those who are still moldable need to hear this, you think. You know, we can think that way explicitly or in very subtle ways. Even subconsciously, we might be driven to that kind of thinking. Once an older man told me after a sermon, he actually said, this campus, you're much too young to instruct me. You haven't lived life long enough. And my response respectfully was, sir, with all due respect, it doesn't matter how young the preacher is. It doesn't matter how young the preacher is. If he clearly is telling you what the Word of God says and interpreting it rightly, and he's calling you to change, you best obey it. You best obey God's Word. Otherwise, God will deal with you. It's between you and God, regardless of how young the preacher is. See, for some older Christians, age-wise or spiritually speaking, we need to be careful that change doesn't become such a bad word to us. We don't like the word change. It becomes a bad word. Even if the Bible is calling us to change, we have a difficult time with that. We are stuck in our opinions, our traditions that we may have. For years and years, maybe you've cultivated patterns of thinking and behavior that may not be sinful in themselves, but they make it very difficult for you to move even when God's word very clearly calls you to change whether that is individually or as a corporate body. They don't want to move, even if God's word clearly says it. And my encouragement, beloved, older, wiser person would be this. Don't ever stop being teachable, no matter how old you are. Always be humble and teachable. You have not arrived, not arrived. You know, I'm so encouraged. In the first service, Barbara Kelly comes up to me. And some of our elderly saints constantly, they are the people that most come up to me and other pastors sharing about what they're learning and how a particular message impacted them. And even weeks and months later, there have been examples when they come to me and they're like, remember that sermon that you preached at two or three months ago? I'm still working on that. How precious is that? How beautiful is that? (laughs) That They respond to the word of God that way, even though they're older and they've been walking with the Lord much longer than I have, they are humble and teachable. They are applying the Word of God. I'm also talking to you who are younger, either age-wise or spiritual maturity. Are you teachable? Because young Christians can also struggle with pride in this area. You know, oftentimes, young people tend to be very concerned about expressing their own opinions or theories about things. If we're not careful. Some young people love to pontificate about everything in the biblical text. Everything becomes a peripheral, every peripheral issue becomes a hill to die on. Everything is a hill to die on. Everything is a bent. Issues that you want to pick a bone with somebody about. And we know that these are unhealthy bents based upon the fact that you always want to talk about the same thing every time you have a conversation with somebody. It's always around the same types of issues. And I remember a few years ago at a former church, having uh, uh, friends and and brethren in that that church who had this issue with the new heart in the the Bible. That according to the, the, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, we have a new heart. So you cannot speak about having a sinful, wicked heart still. Because we have a new heart. We have a perfect heart. If in salvation we have we have received this new heart, we should not be talking about the fact that we have a sinful heart. How could that be? We had tons of conversations about the new heart issue. Hours and hours and hours opening up the scriptures and showing them from God's word concerning the issue, trying to round them out, trying to get them to understand and have a balanced outlook on this. And eventually it became a conflict amongst us because they would not budge. Everything was a pushback to the Word of God. Everything was an argumentation. They had a combative spirit about everything. Instead of cultivating an attitude of teachability, they became argumentative and combative. And and, And every conversation that we would have would always lead to the new heart issue. I mean, I remember even having a conversation about Mike Piazza, the Dodgers catcher at that time. And I was having a conversation with one of these brothers, and we're talking about home runs and how Mike Piazza is going to go down as in the Hall of Fame. And all of a sudden, within two minutes, less than two minutes, we started talking about the new heart issue. Somehow, some way. I think he mentioned the fact that, you know, it would be great if Mike Piazza got saved. Wouldn't that be great? Well, you know, if he gets saved, he's going to have a new heart. I mean, everything went to that conversation. Everything was was about that particular bent, no matter what we were talking about. we got to be very careful, beloved. For either young or older, a combative spirit becomes a hindrance in our relationships and, more importantly, takes us away from obeying the Word of God. It takes us away from that. See, at the end of the day, whether you're younger or older, it doesn't matter how much you know if the knowledge that you have does not lead you to love God, love others, and live what you know. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up, right? So be teachable. Be teachable. This is what will lead to righteous, godly living. Be teachable. I love what what Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, how that, that prophet ends It says that the Lord looks to those who are broken and contrite of spirit and who tremble at his word. That's who God is looking at. Those are the people that God wants to use. People that are broken and contrite of spirit and who tremble at his word in such a way that they're driven to do that which he wants them to do unreservedly, genuinely from the heart. That's what he wants. He wants us to cultivate that type of attitude of humble teachability, beloved. That's where a right response to the Word of God must begin with us. With humble teachability. Secondly, secondly, labor for your heart to be spiritually prepared. Labor for your heart to be spiritually prepared for the Word of God. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness... And all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Notice that the the main exhortation, exhortation is in the middle of verse 21, where he says, In humility receive the word implanted. The word receive here carries this idea of a joyful, welcoming, or appropriating of the word of God. The implanted word by which they have already been regenerated. That has been that seed of the word that's been put in your heart as a believer, you must you must allow it to, to to make its home in your heart. As someone has put it, as a Christian in humble spirit, welcome joyfully the word into your heart and life, like the noble Bereans in Acts seventeen eleven, who it says there that they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures. Every day to see if what Paul said was true. See, the idea here is is that the Word has made its home in your heart. So much much a part of you that you are driven to action. It's the Colossians 3.16 exhortation from Paul. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it make its home in your heart. Let it make its home in your heart. You know, no matter how much I've traveled and no matter how much the saints in those foreign countries that i traveled to would try to bring us into a nice hotel where it was comfortable where it was it was you know they had good warm food warm shower for us or they would bring us into their home and they would make a nice bed for us and a nice situation there for us and serve us warm food and a warm shower no matter how comfortable they made that environment it was never home it was never home there's only one home and that's my safe haven That's where I feel most comfortable, most at peace. I want to ask you, is Christ and his word at peace in your heart? Is he dwelling in you richly? Is Christ so much reigning over your heart and life that it's showing forth in the way that you live, in the direction of your life? And this takes humility. Humility. Notice that's why he says in verse 21, In humility receive the word implanted. This is the right attitude needed to accomplish this command to receive the word implanted. You must be humble. In contrast to an angry response to the word of God in verses 19 through 20, there must be humility instead. And humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is cultivated when we, when we examine ourselves in light of the greatness and the majesty of God rather than in light of other people who are just as sinful as we are. Humility must be a part of us. Humble people, beloved, listen when the truth of God's word is being spoken and they are eager to receive it. In humility receive the word implanted. What James is saying here is, make every effort to offer your heart as the good soil in which the implanted word can readily grow, is what he's saying. James is a master illustrator, is he not? Master illustrator. This is agricultural imagery here, of seed and soil. The word of God has been planted into your, into your heart, but like seed on soil, it wants to do the work in your heart. It wants to be fruitful. But this requires that believers make make hard work and labor every single day to allow the word of god to make its home in your heart beloved that you might be fruitful it takes work we are not to be passive in this endeavor it is an active and purposeful pursuit and notice the motivation in verse 21 for this humble reception of the word which is able to save your souls what does he mean that they are losing their salvation and being saved over again That's not what he means. He has already said in verse 18 that they have been been brought forth by the word of truth. They're regenerated. They're Christians. What he means is that the word of God that has saved them has the saving power to continue to deliver them from the destruction of sin and the consequences of sin in their life. James is looking at the whole picture here of salvation. Their salvation is secure. He has mentioned the new birth in verse 18, but the full culmination of their salvation comes at the return of Christ. And in the meantime, the word must be humbly welcomed into their hearts and their lives until that time. Well, you may say to yourself, well, you know, I don't have any arguments with humbly welcoming the word of God this way. I know that it has saving power. I know, but my problem is I don't desire it, Kempis. I don't desire it. What's wrong with me? Well, I think James gives us a huge indicator, beloved, of what can possibly be wrong at the beginning of verse 21. Notice what he says there. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted. Notice what he says there. The exhortation is to humbly receive the word implanted, but that exhortation is dependent upon our active pursuit of holiness, of dealing with our sin. Listen to me. Nothing has the power to kill and murder your desire for the word of God as unrepentant sin in your life. Nothing. Secret sins. Those things that you don't want anybody to know about are the very things that if you don't confess them before God and others who can keep you accountable are the very things that are going to suck the life out of you, beloved, that are going to take away the the desire and the longing for the word of God, kills a desire for the word unrepentant sin does. James is saying, you want to position yourself to humbly receive the Word of God? Deal with your sin. Deal with those hindering sins which slowly murder a desire for the Word of God. The picture here is of removing filthy garments. Yes, we have repented of our sins when we come to Christ at conversion. Yes, we have a new identity in Christ, beloved. But we are not perfected at salvation. We are not. We must be, in, we're in this active process of sanctification, this continual process where our salvation is secure, i.e. justification. Point in time. Accepted before God by faith in Christ. But sanctification is an ongoing process. And we are called to be active participants there. Slain sin. Amen? Slain sin. Otherwise, It's going to suck the desire away from you for the word of God and for Christ, whom the word of God reveals. One pastor has written, quote, before the word of God can be effectively welcomed into your life as a Christian, the hindering sins must be dealt with, end quote. They must be dealt with. And James tells us, he helps us, he he tells us what we are to deal with in our Christian lives. He says in verse 21, we are to put off. All filthiness, which refers to moral uncleanness, moral impurity. And notice all of it. He says, comprehensively get rid of all of it. Not even a speck of it. Anything that is morally defiling. Anything that is morally unclean. Anything that is morally impure. Not just in the eyes of people, but in the quietness of your own heart. Deal with it comprehensively. Private immorality, public immorality, private impurity, public impurity, private defilement, public defilement. Deal with it. Otherwise you will not have a longing for the word of God which reveals the beautiful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will not make his home in your heart that way. If you have sins in your heart that you're unrepentant of. He also says, verse 21 implied all abundance of evil, of wickedness. The meaning is malice, ill will. It is this attitude that desires the injury of others. Evil in any form. Evil in any shape. Evil in any shades. Deal with it. Put it aside. Get away from it. Far away from it. Flee youthful lusts if you're a man of God. Flee youthful lusts if you're a woman of God. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Abstain from every form of evil. See, Christians are holy, set apart from sin, unto holiness, unto righteous living. And this holiness must be manifested in the way that we live, beloved, as an evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. There is an internal change that has taken place in us as believers by faith in Christ. Christ has come to die on the cross for our sins. He has come and paid the fullness of the wrath of God upon himself on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And by faith in that one, we must turn, we must repent from our sins and put our faith in Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That is a reality in us as Christians. You have put your faith in Christ. And yet, many times we don't manifest holy living externally in the way that we live. We don't apply the word of God as we ought to. Even though we have this new identity in Christ, beloved, and this change has happened, that must show itself in the way that we live, that we've been cleansed. And we must walk in love and obedience. I will never forget hearing the testimony of a little boy a few years ago um, and his little sister in Thailand. Um, a group of, of American donors go to this place, this organization that works with Uh, 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 rescuing children from sex trafficking and there's this there's this gathering there where this group of donors sits in the back of the room and all the little kids that have been rescued from sex trafficking come into this room sitting pretzel legs and they had various testimonies and this little boy gets up there and he says he starts giving his testimony of how God rescued him from sex trafficking and he says do you remember me? (laughs) do you remember me? what I look like? Do you remember how I came in filthy and dirty and my clothes were all filthy and dirty and my hair was all messed up? And he starts describing himself before he came to this place. He says, do you remember my little sister? Do you remember how she, how she came and she was dirty and filthy? And then they took us in here and they washed us and they cleansed us and they put new clothing upon us and we're different. He says, but most importantly, do you remember how we got saved? We were with somebody shared Jesus with us. And we got saved. And the Lord washed us and changed us from within. And now we're different, he says. Now we're different. We're no longer the same. And of course everybody's crying and weeping and you, you can only imagine that as this little boy is giving that testimony. See, they were no longer the same kids anymore. They had a new identity. A new identity in Christ. And the external appearance was illustrative or evidence of that internal reality and renewal that had taken place for them. It was a visual picture of what they were before and now in Christ they were different. They were cleansed, you see. What a beautiful thing that is. It's the same thing in the Christian life, beloved. We have this imagery in the New Testament of metaphorically of of the fact that believers should pursue righteous living in light of their identity in Christ, that they are now delivered from sin and they're different and they're called to flesh this out in their life and be actively pursuing holiness and putting off sin. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, but now you also put them all aside anger wrath malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who has been renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him in other words you're different you've been created different you're a new person if you're in Christ put aside anger and wrath and slander and abusive speech from your mouth put it aside Be who Christ has made you to be. Operate, function according to your new identity in Christ. You're no longer the same person. You've been washed. You've been sanctified in the name of the Lord. You have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Live in accordance with that reality that you are a new person and pursue holiness. That's the message of the New Testament authors. First Peter chapter one, verse 14 says this as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy one who called you be holy yourselves. And also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. First Peter two, one, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and implied all hypocrisy, implied all envy and slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. A powerful passage. Some of you mommies know what it's like to have a newborn baby, right? When that baby is hungry, there's no biblical counseling that's going to happen at that moment. There's no reasoning with that little baby. That baby wants one thing. What do they want? Milk. Feed me. Or else you're going, to, you're going to hear this for hours and hours. You better feed me. Peter says, you want to be like that baby? Longing for the pure milk of the word. Insatiably pursuing the word of God. Deal with your sin. Put aside sin. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. First John 3.3 3 says that everyone who has their hope fixed on seeing God purifies himself just as he is pure. See, all of these passages, beloved, are calling us to holy living, as James one twenty one says. There is this dynamic at work in the Christian life, that at conversion we have been made new creatures, given a new identity in Christ, set apart for his purposes, but were not perfected. We struggle with sin. We're broken human beings. But now we have the power by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Amen? And we have the divine blueprint, the Word of God that tells us how to put the deeds of the flesh to death. It is necessary that as believers, we labor, beloved, for spiritual preparation in the Christian life. To receive the Word of God. You want your heart to be fertile soil for the Word of God? You need to work to weed out the sin that's there. Weed out the sin that's there from the root. You have the power to do it, the Spirit of God. You have the blueprint that instructs you how to do it, the Word of God. How do I know if I'm dealing with sin in this manner? How do I know? Well, ask yourself do you have a hunger for the Word of God? Do you have a hunger for the word of God? Do you desire the word of God? Do you delight in the word of God, which reveals Christ? And you're, you have this love bond relationship with Jesus as revealed in his word. Do you de- de- delight in the Lord? I'm so encouraged by many of you who just love the word of God. You're so precious to this body. I sat this last week in an elder meeting and a deacon meeting. And it was so encouraging to hear the brothers in their prayers, especially just confessing sin, uttering words in their prayers that you could just tell they've been processing through the Word of God being preached and taught in their own lives and in the preaching of God's Word. I was so encouraged by that. They're... they're cultivating a heart of humility and and appropriation and a welcoming of the Word of God so that they're thinking about the Word of God and praying the Word of God. And it's causing them to want to confess sin so that they may be holy men of God personally with their families and lead the church well. I'm so encouraged by that. So encouraged. See, we need to be word-saturated people. But this requires that we deal with our sins, beloved. You know, I have... I have such a burden for our young people in this mass media age. How do you expect, young person, if you're here, how do you expect to have a sweet, intimate relationship with Jesus and his word that Jesus would have would feel at home in your heart when you are saturating your mind and your heart with junk food from the world? How could that be? Your precious mind is like a sponge, and whatever you put in that sponge is what's going to come out when you squeeze it. Got to be so careful. And I would say to all of us, how do we expect the word of God to make its home in our hearts when we are spiritual pack rats with sin? We bring in sin into our lives and we, we allow unrepentant sin to be there. Yes, we will always have sin. Yes, we struggle with sin. We are not perfected. I get that. I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about unrepentant sin not dealing with sin in an authentic manner so that your your hunger and your thirst for the word of God grows, beloved. That's what I'm talking about. Beloved, if you have secret sins that you are not repenting of, Christ and his word will not be at home in your heart. Don't complain about not having a desire for the word. If you're not pursuing holiness in your life, putting off sin, getting accountable where other people can come in a community of faith like this and keep you accountable, to the word of God, to obedience in particular areas. You can't lie to God. You can't fool God. You may be able to fool other people, other human beings. You can't fool God. I would encourage you and exhort you and plead with you that you would confess that sin to God and get accountable with other believers. Deal with your sin, beloved, if you want to have an insatiable longing for the word of God. Deal with it. So you want to be positioned for the word of God to do its work in your life? Cultivate an attitude of humble teachability. Cultivate an attitude of humble teachability. And then labor hard to be spiritually prepared. To have a fertile, heart, a fertile ground. The soil of your heart may be prepared to receive the word of God and to bear much, much fruit. And next year we're going to be looking at the third exhortation. Don't ever forget, by the way, that all Scripture at the end of the day and your intake of God's Word and your response to the Word of God must lead to a greater, sweeter, more intimate relationship with Jesus. Amen? That's where it should lead you to. As Christians, it is, it's not just this, this book that we're reading that doesn't reveal anyone. This book reveals the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the preeminent one. The one with whom we have a a beautiful, perfect, love bond relationship with. Who has saved us. Who's our redeemer. I pray that we might remember that. And you know, if you don't know Christ this morning. If you are here and you don't know the Lord. I pray that today you may give your life to the Lord. You know, Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and I. He came into the world to suffer. And he died for you. And he took upon the fullness of his father's wrath for you. Fullness, punished, beaten, though he was innocent. And as we read earlier in Psalm 2, he is the king of glory who's returning someday. And what he's going to want to know is, what did you do in response to the fact that he died for your sins? Did you repent of your sins? Did you turn from your sins, from self-worship, a life of self-worship, and put your faith in His atoning sacrifice, in the fact that He paid for your sins? I pray that if you have not made your relationship right before God, that you would plead for the mercy and the grace of God today, that you would give your life to the Lord and experience that sweet relationship with Christ. Salvation is all about Christ. It's not even about us at the end of the day, is it? It's all about Christ, delighting in Christ. I pray, my friend, that if you don't know the Lord, you may find the pearl of great price today, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King and the Savior of your soul. I pray that you may give your life to the Lord. And after we pray, there will be people up front to talk to you if you have any questions about that. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a tremendous message from your word today, Lord, for our hearts. That we need to be people who respond with obedience, loving obedience to your word, being doers of the word. I've been so convicted of this in my own life, Lord. I pray that, Father, we might think about things that we need to think about differently. Attitudes that we must change. Our view of you that must change. Actions that must be different. Priorities that must be different. The use of our resources that must be different, Lord. I pray that we might be doers of your word. And more importantly, that we would draw close to you through your word, that we may behold the beauty of the majesty of Jesus, the exalted risen Lord of the universe, the one that we await for his return. Father, please help us. Draw us close to you, Lord, through a right intake of your word that is humble and teachable, and that at the end of the day is committed to doing anything that you want us to do, Father. We ask you all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.